I think that we're the, the only church in the whole country, maybe the whole world at this moment, that is opening their, their worship service with uh, a quote from uh, Bono of U2. But listen to this. You know, it's suspected for years that Bono knows the Lord. And uh, the more I listen to their music and, and the more I, I've been driving around listening to this song all week long, listen to some of these lyrics. Grace. She takes the blame. She covers the shame, removes the stain. Does that sound scriptural? Uh, listen to this. Um, when she goes to work, you can hear her strings. What once was hurt. Oh, yeah, listen to this. She carries a pearl in perfect condition. What once was hurt. What once was friction. What left a mark no longer stings. Because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. If you've never heard the gospel before, I suggest to you that that's a pretty good presentation of it. Grace covers the shame and, and uh, removes the sting and makes beauty out of ugly things. And that's what we gather to sing for today. We gather to sing for the God of that great plan and the Savior who made it possible. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father. We thank you for this splendid thing called grace. We thank you, O oh God, that, that uh, hearts full of ugly things and lives full of checkered pasts and closets full of, of brittle skeletons could be made whole and right and alive and well because of this great thing called grace. We bless you, O oh God, and thank you that you've, you've richly poured out your blessings upon us. You have lavishly done it. And we pray that our hearts this morning would be refreshed as we reflect on true things about you, about what you have done and what has been accomplished on our behalf in our Lord. We pray, O oh God, that we would be lifted up, yea, lifted up even over the hard things of this world, that we might ascribe glory to the one it is due. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Father, we understand, uh, we seem to understand better and better that the flesh profits nothing and that unless the Spirit of God descends upon us, this apostate race, there will be no good that will be forthcoming from any of us. Father, we thank you that you have brought us to life through the sovereign work of your Holy Spirit who has intervened to bring us from death to life. But now, O oh God, we who live by the Spirit long to walk by the Spirit. And pray that you will so energize us that what goes on here this morning will change us. We're not here to spend another Sunday morning, a Sunday hour in a, some kind of religious habit. We are here, O oh God, because we understand that our greatest need is to center upon, to refocus upon that for which we have been made. To worship. To worship the God who made us and then went on to redeem us in Christ Jesus and now dwells inside us in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Breathe on us. Breathe on us afresh. Our Father, we do thank you for our country. We pray that you will put in place men who will make decisions that honor you. And I pray, Father, that whatever government is there, that you will find your people submitting to it because that is your desire. 
But Father, as we take part this, this week, we pray that you will guide us all. Our Father, we as a nation celebrate that nine men who could have died have not. That you have seen fit to rescue those nine miners trapped in Pennsylvania. And Father, like, like the men in the book of Daniel, there were not three in that den. There were four. There was another, an unseen host. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, for having mercy on those nine men. And we celebrate their deliverance. Now, Father, might that be used even to demonstrate to America all over again that you are the God of heaven and earth and nothing will thwart your will. And we have come to learn that will better so that we might, in the power of the Spirit, live it out, flesh it out in front of a world who wonders what the truth really is. Thank you for this opportunity to give. We pray that every dime will be used to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and return with me to the book of Job. And before, uh, let's start in chapter 6, Job chapter 6. But before I read my text... Let me just remind you what we're doing up here this summer. I uh, started out the, with the first Sunday in this summer trying to teach just some lessons out of the book of Job. I confess openly that I do not understand all that con- is contained in it. Um, there's a lot said that I'm not sure whether we're supposed to emulate or, or reject. But there are some lessons in it that I think are vitally important. Um, and, and what I've been doing is trying to just draw out some lessons out of the book. And two weeks ago, when I was last here, I mentioned to you that there was one of the counselors of Job, one of Job's friends, Zophar, who said a very cruel and hurtful thing. And then there was one, Elihu, towards the end, who was the youngest, who said something that was uh, applauded by God, apparently. And uh, what I tried to communicate then is that because we don't fully understand all that God is up to, nor do we have the big picture of, uh, of everything... We need to keep our comments to a bare minimum. Remember the mental picture that I tried to leave you with about standing on the shore and seeing people out on a boat struggling and having difficulties. <clears throat> and my, my suggestion to you was, hush. We don't have enough data to properly analyze what, what they're experiencing. My point in telling you all of that is to say, this morning is really the second half of that sermon. Uh, I want to take that thought to another, to another place, to another level, and suggest something to us as a, as a body of believers. And to do that, I want to read you some, just some snatches out of the book of Job. All of these come out of Job's mouth. These are things that Job says about the three friends who gather to help him. Listen to these. You just follow along. We're going to jump around. But one verse out of Job 6, verse 14. To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Then in chapter 13, two verses, verses 3 and 4. Again, Job speaks and says, But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. But you forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. 
And then one other in chapter 16. Verse 2. Job again speaks and says, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. I hope you noticed a, um, a common thread in those three things, ladies and gentlemen. A common thread that Job, uh, a, a common point that he is making. Because that's what I want to develop this morning. Job's estimate of his, uh, of the help that was brought by his so-called friends. I think you know that much of this book consists in a dialogue um, between Job and these three buddies of his, and then at the end, another guy steps forward, so there's a total of four. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, in one sense, I want to suggest to you that the greatest mystery of this book is not why Job suffered. Uh, that is a mystery. Maybe, maybe that is the greatest, but second only to it is the mystery of why this man Job, in his state, in his particular condition, is forced to fight this long, drawn-out theological battle with people who are supposed to be his friends. What What on earth is going on here that someone in this state of suffering is engaged in? We don't know how many, how long it took, how many days or weeks. But why in the earth is a, is a believing brother called upon to have his pain exacerbated by people who are supposed to be his friends? Who are these guys? Are they true believers, that is, the three friends, or are they uh, some kind of rank heretic? Are they solid, mature people? whose wise counsel 99 times out of 100 would be considered to have been perfectly acceptable? Or are they some sort of folk who we more often than we like to think run into in churches today, who are very sincere, very knowledgeable, but also they are uh, somewhat high-minded and insensitive, are doctrinally very sound, but lacking in compassion. Who are these guys? Are they bona fide believers with a lot of growing that needs to be done? Or are they some kind of rank heretic? We're never told. One commentarian that I read suggested this. He said that since you never see Satan again after chapter 2, that what these three friends are, are really embodiments of the devil. <laughs> I, I don't think we have to go quite that far as to see them as accomplices with Satan. But um, I think we at least have to say this much. That they were used by Satan. They were used by Satan to even worsen an already horrible situation. Which leads me to my point, ladies and gentlemen. Here's a lesson for us. Please listen. It's a sad thing, a sobering thought, that we Christians, on occasion, could be used by the devil. (laughs) That's my lesson. With friends like these, 
Who needs enemies? Job has had a gutful, ladies and gentlemen, and you see it in all three of those verses, that I, all three of those texts that I read you. He's had a gutful of them, and uh, it faces us with a very distasteful fact that the three friends who came, we're told in chapter 2, verse 11, who came to sympathize and comfort Job, uh, don't do any comforting. Uh, in fact, what they end up doing is picking him to pieces and analyzing him up and down to try and find some kind of hidden fault or hidden sins. What they end up doing is turning the knife and driving it in more deeply. They go about it in a very uh, godly way with the best of intentions. But the point is, ladies and gentlemen, these three people on a mission of mercy end up displaying no mercy. They are convinced that they are right. And because they are convinced they are right, that must mean Job must be wrong. And so Job, I don't know if you notice it in the two texts, but Job calls them, number one, worthless physicians... And secondly, miserable comforters. That's what you've become to me. Worthless physicians. People who think that the way to minister to others in pain is by straightening them out. Well, I, I um, agree with those who suggest that the greatest hurt of all, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest hurt that Job experiences is what is inflicted upon him by his three buddies. Uh, it's uh, one thing to be wounded by an enemy, but we expect that. That's predictable. What we don't expect, what we don't anticipate, is being hurt by people who call themselves our friends. I want to read you a quote from Oswald Chambers, who says this. When I suffer and I feel I am to blame for it, I can explain it to myself. When I suffer and know I am not to blame, it is a harder matter. But when I suffer and realize that my most intimate relations think I am to blame, that is the limit of suffering. That is where the scourge of suffering lashed Job. The power of the sneer of Satan has come now into his most intimate relationships. You know, that happened to Jesus. There is a text that is mentioned in Psalm 41 about the, the one who betrayed him had eaten bread with him. The worst part, kind of the nadir of this whole experience, is to think that Job's situation was worsened by people who should have come to his aid. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the Christian church can be a pretty dangerous place to be when you're in agony. We've got all of these trite little phrases that I mean, we've got a quiver full of them. We've got an arsenal of stuff that we say like, um, cheer up, look on the bright side. Well, I would look on the bright side if there were one. Or um, every cloud has a silver lining. Is that so? 
I know some that are black all the way through. Or um, you just need to pray more. That's usually said to people who have spent sleepless nights doing that very thing. Or um, you must have more faith. That's easy for you to say. And by the way, that's a judgment that only God can make. Or, um, I know this will turn out all right if you'll just let Jesus lead you. Well, who said he's not leading me now? Or, you'd better search your heart. Translated, that means, you better search your heart, because I sure have. Gang, whatever form it may take, the theology of what I like to call hyperfaith causes Christian compassion to deteriorate, and it's replaced with this fix-it mentality. Because uh, there are some rules that we all know that are supposed to govern people in the midst of their pain. We bring to our, those situations, because of our fix-it mentality, we bring to it some rules. Rule number one, mourning has time limits. Why? You know, her husband died four months ago, and she's still mourning. The other unspoken rule is there is an appropriate way to mourn. You know, ladies and gentlemen... Let a brother who is going through a hard time express his exasperation in some four-letter word. And immediately, we're more concerned about his language than we are his agony. Because as you know, there is an appropriate way that we're supposed to all respond. One man said, and I forget who I, where I found this, but he said, Oh, how a sense of being right can stifle true compassion. That's true, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? A sense of being right. That's what you see in the book of Job. A sense of being right, stifling a sense of true compassion. So here's what I want to suggest. I want to suggest that we open a school for comforters, kind of a, a school for caregivers, and, uh, and I, I need to warn you that the first course that you will take in this school is a doozy. I want you to see it. If you can open your Bibles real quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me show you what the first course in my school for comforting consists of. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read you beginning at verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 3. Here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. So the dean of this school, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, is God. Now look at this next sentence. This God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations. If I could insert a little word here. So that... We may be able to comfort those who are in trouble, trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, did you get lost in the comforts? 
You know, the word comfort is mentioned like four times in there, three times. The God of all comfort. Here's what the God of all comfort does. The God of all comfort comforts us in all of our tribulations. Thank you, oh God of all comfort, that you do that. Now, why does he do that? We're told. So that, or that, those who are being comforted, we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble. How? Well, we comfort them with the comfort with which we ourselves got comforted by God. Now, gang, there are numerous implications in that one little sentence. The God of comfort comforts us all. And he comforts us with a goal in mind. That you and I might use the comfort that we got while we were going through difficult times. That we might distribute that comfort that we got when we were comforted. Gang... What this text does is, it it does several things, but it promises us first that God will comfort us. But it also indicates that in the midst of him comforting us, there is to be a lesson. And the lesson is that we're supposed to learn how God comforts us so that we can use that in the lives of somebody else who is being troubled. Did you know that? Did you know that simple little truth? (laughs) Gang. This school of comforting that I want to um, uh, begin has already begun. It's called life. And gang, the things that you and I experience are not supposed to make us harder. They're supposed to make us softer. All of the stuff that makes us cry at night and our palms sweat. Once we get through it, we're supposed to be people who are more capable of comforting other folks that are around us. We're supposed to be comforters because we've been comforted. I don't know what happened to the Job's three friends But for heaven's sake, let's not let that happen to us. You know, ladies and gentlemen, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Only two. And it's not the the wounded and the non-wounded. No. We're all wounded. We're all defective. We all have deficits, ladies and gentlemen. All of us. The only two kinds of people in the world are those who have been wounded who know it and those who have been wounded who don't know it. Those who have been wounded... But it didn't produce in them the kind of grace that was supposed to be the result of their enduring whatever it is that they endured. I read this little story. It's kind of, I don't know, some of you might enjoy it. I enjoyed it because I'm a kind of a tender-hearted kind of, I know you don't believe that. But, but um, it's a story about a little boy who wanted to buy a puppy. You ever heard this story? So he goes to the pet store to buy a puppy. And fortunately, the pet store owner has got uh, five, a litter of uh, five new puppies that he can sell. And so the boy looks at all, of, all five of the little puppies, and, and he selects this one to buy. And the, and the store owner says, son, you don't want to buy that puppy. Because that puppy has got something wrong with its hip. Can't you see how he's limping and dragging that back leg around? He'll never be able to run and skip and play with you. And the little boy looked at the store owner, and he 
he lifted up his pants leg. And there on his leg was a brace that extended from above his knee all the way down to his ankle. He says, sir, that's all right. Because I wouldn't be able to run and skip and play with him either. The moral of the story, it's the wounded that feel comfortable in the presence of the wounded. Gang, what is supposed to happen is other people's pain is supposed to evoke from us a great deal of tenderness and sympathy, not scrutiny and judgment. Because the wounded are supposed to be comfortable in the presence of the wounded. I read a story, and, and, and I don't even know why I stick this in here, because, but I think it has relevance. There was a survey done just recently, ladies and gentlemen, of senior citizens in London. And the survey consisted of one question. What is the happiest time of your life that you can remember? This is senior citizens in London. What is the happiest time of your life? A full 60% of them said the same thing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that in and of itself is remarkable. Of all the, the, the life experiences that you could have selected, you know, the grandchildren or job promotion or the place at the beach or, you know, of all the things, 60% of them chose the same thing. That's amazing. But senior citizens in London, 60% of them chose the same thing. You know what the same thing was? The Blitz. You know what that is? It's back in World War II when Hitler sent wave after wave, night after night of the German Luftwaffe to bomb London and seeking to bomb London into submission. And he failed. And 60% of the senior citizens in London looked back on those nights when they were being attacked from the skies by Hitler's Air Force, saying it was the happiest time of my life. Why? Why? I don't know, ladies and gentlemen, but here's what I think. Because the wounded are comfortable in the presence, or at least should be, of other wounded. When we all know we're wounded, when we all know that there's deficits, when we all realize that, ladies and gentlemen, it should make us softer in the presence of other wounded. You know, gang, <clears throat> you know, I, I risk speaking foolishly, you know, and I, I, I want to stop short, but I, I still think there's a point to be made. So bear with me for a second. Think for a moment of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I, I certainly don't want to make light of any of that. But one of the things that had to be one of the cruelest moments is that in the midst of his sufferings, while impaled on a Roman cross, people were standing on the ground and taunting him, saying, If you were the Son of Man, you'd come down from there. <laughs> we know you're not the, the real thing, because if you were the real thing, you know, this wouldn't be happening to you. <laughs> come on down from there and prove it, that you're the Son of God. Now think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Because I'm telling you, that very kind of assault goes on among the people of God. If you were a real Christian, <laughs> you wouldn't be experiencing what it is you're experiencing. Because, you know, the real spiritual people, they don't 
have problems like you got. I mean, the fact that you got that problem means that uh, you could... It's the same assault, at least in, the, in its essence. If you were the real thing, you wouldn't be wounded like you're wounded. They said that about Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. You know, gang, how, how good are you at being in the presence of other wounded? Your wounds are supposed to make you softer. There is nothing, in my opinion, nothing more ludicrous than the way that some folks try to soothe the sorrows and wounds of other people and the way that they try to do it. It is, it is brutal to watch. G.K. Chesterton said, There are those who try to solve an earthquake with a pill or use a pill to solve an earthquake. And, and when I see people, Well, let me get you straightened out in the midst of your difficulty. It's like using a pill for an earthquake. I um, heard another little maudlin story. Maybe you like these maudlin stories. I hope you do. At least they'll keep you awake for another minute or two. A little girl. I, I, I think this is true. I think this is the, I'm not sure. But um, a little girl, um, Samantha, was six years old. And she lost her playmate, Jenny, who lived down the street from her, um, to a car accident. And little Samantha knew that... Uh, Jenny's mother was grieved and sorrowing and mourning. And, and she didn't know what she could do, but she just felt like she needed to go down and see her friend's mother. And so she walked down the block to see her mother. And, and um, she came home, and she was a little bit late in coming home, and her own parents got kind of worried. Where have you been, Samantha? What have, what have you been doing? What's the, what's, uh, what, I mean, you're late for supper. And she said, well, I just had to go down and see Jenny's mother. Her father kind of looked at his wife and said, Well, Samantha, what did you say to her? What did you do? Samantha said, Well, I really didn't say or do anything. I just crawled up in her lap and cried with her. You know, my friends, wounded feel comfortable in the presence of other wounded. But when we come with that bull in a china shop approach to other people, other person's pain, I, I guess it means that we are having really sensed that we're wounded too. You know, Max Lucado has a, he is a word merchant. He has a way with words, a twist on a word, and he says this. The principle is simple. When words are most empty, tears are most apt. Isn't that good? When words are most empty, tears are most apt. You know, guys, at the end of this book, um, what we find is the tables are turned, and of course, these three friends are told, or spanked, really, by God. And Job prays for them and, and uh, restores their relationship. But, you know, I, I've often wondered while reading the book of Job, why one of them didn't pause and say, Job, could we pray?
Let's just uh, let's just pause a minute, a minute in the midst of all this mystery, and let's pray. I I I, um, I don't understand everything that you're experiencing, but I would like to pray with you. I'll tell you one more story, and a couple other things, and I'm finished. I read this story this week on the on the beach about a young. This happened 2,000 years ago. This is true. About a young 30-year-old governor in the nation of Spain who found a statue to Alexander the Great and threw himself on the base of the statue and began to weep. And um, while, as he wept, someone asked him about, well, what are you weeping about? And he said, well, because I'm 30 years old to today, today is my 30th birthday, And by age 30, Alexander the Great had conquered the world. And I'm 30 and I haven't uh, conquered much of anything. Well, you know, most of us would think a a 30-year-old who was a governor of uh, Spain had done pretty good, but not this guy. Well, less than three decades later, this man went on to become probably the greatest ruler and military conqueror the world has ever known. His name was Julius Caesar. He was so powerful, in fact, that his closest friends thought that it very ill-advised for him to have that much power. And so they conspired to kill him, as you know. They thought uh, any man who had that much power terminated in his own hands would be a dangerous threat to the rest of humanity. And so they thought that the only solution was to kill him. And so if you've read anything of ancient history, you realize that Julius Caesar was assassinated indoors. And the agreement was that all the assassins, all the conspirators would would agree to stab him at least once so that no one could be blamed for his assassination. And so on the day that the assassination took place, the little ring of his friends uh, began to tighten around him. And they drew their knives and Julius Caesar realized what was, what was taking place. He was being betrayed by his comrades. But Julius Caesar was quite a man himself and began to fight viciously, began to fight viciously uh, against them. And uh, was making some headway. In fact, some of the conspirators paid a very high price for their conspiracy. But at one point in the struggle, he turned to find, as you know, Brutus. His best friend. And when he saw Brutus, there was, he stopped fighting and there was this eerie silence for a moment. At which time the most famous words were uttered, at two, Brute! And you know what that means. You too? You too, Brutus? And the story goes that at that point, all of his will to fight had been, was drained out of him. That he sat down on the ground, pulled his cloak over him, and allowed those men to stab him until his death. Because the idea of being betrayed by your comrades is one thing. But to be betrayed by your best friend was something that Caesar just could not live with. Guys, never let it be said among us 
my brother and sister in Christ. You too? No, no. Don't let it be. One other thing and I'll shut up. There's a lesson in the book of Job that we haven't gotten to yet. We're going to get to it before I end this series in the end of August. But the lesson has to do with Job being a type of Christ. And we'll see that later on. But I just wanted to close on this note, ladies and gentlemen. Job, a type of Christ, looks at his friends and calls them worthless physicians. Worthless physicians. The New Testament Job, who suffered a great deal, as you know as well, Jesus, never called me worthless. In fact, he went on to lay his life down for his friends. That's what he calls me in John 15. This Old Testament type of Christ had friends that were worthless, position, were worthless physicians. Jesus, by his death, makes me full of worth and one of his friends. Do you know Jesus like that? That's good. Our Father, I do indeed pray for your people that we might steadfastly refuse to to be used in some harsh and uh, judgmental way in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Lord, we want to be never known as being worthless physicians. We want to be known as helpful and empathetic and, and, and useful people as we watch others go through difficulty uh, in their lives. Father, we're all wounded. We know we are. And yet... Our wounds have been redeemed. We are a people who could have never saved ourselves. But Jesus Christ, through his sufferings, has saved a people for himself. We want to be not only people who are known as friends of Jesus, but people who are also known as friends of other brothers and sisters. Might this be a place where the wounded can come and feel comfortable knowing that they are among other wounded. Father, for those who have come who have not yet met Jesus Christ, oh, might they meet him in all of his saving beauty. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for suffering on our behalf. Now, Father... By the power and might of the Holy Spirit, make us into people who give you pleasure. We pray in Jesus' name.